Very good. Great to gather together in this Christmas season. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, if you would pass that to the center aisle, we'd love to collect those and we'll join you in prayer this week. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew's description of the birth of Jesus Christ. And before we look at this text together, let's bow together in prayer. Dear Lord, we believe that you're our light and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? We believe that you're the strength of our life. Of whom shall we be afraid? We ask, Lord, that today you would forgive us of our sins, that we would come to terms, Lord, with your forgiveness, which is new every morning through Christ, and that you would help us to walk in your ways, that you would guide us by the Holy Spirit, that we would sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart to you, that you would strengthen us for every trial, every burden, every opportunity, and may we proclaim your gospel until we see you. Thank you for this Christmas season. I pray that you would prepare our hearts for the coming week, and may we do so now as we look at this wonderful passage in Jesus' name, amen. One of the marvels of uh, human history is how we rarely think of a baby in the nursery as a major force of what's going on in the world presently. The little ones don't make the headlines, they're not viewed as the movers and shakers of the day, and we forget that what God is doing over the long term. The most significant news, however, uh, seldom makes the headlines. Listen to these words by Frank Borum. About two centuries ago, in the early 1800s, the world was following with bated breath the march of Napoleon and waiting with feverish impatience for the latest news of the wars. And all the while, in their own homes, babies were being born. But who could think about babies? Everybody was thinking about battles. In one year in particular, in 1809, lying midway between... Uh, Trafalgar and Waterloo, two major battles in Britain's history, there stole into the world a host of heroes. In 1809, during that time, Gladstone was born. Alfred Tennyson was born in 1809, as was Oliver Wendell Holmes. So was Charles Darwin. And Abraham Lincoln drew his first breath in an old Kentucky log cabin. In 1809. If we go back farther in history, the same was true in the year, the day Jesus Christ was born. Nobody who would have been interviewed in Bethlehem at the time of Christ's birth would have said, There, over there in yonder stall, that's the Savior of the world. No, there were taxes to pay. Uh, there were deadlines to meet. There was a lodging to secure. There was the major hassle of we've got a, a Caesar in Rome telling us that we've got to travel 80 miles to Bethlehem. And no one was more inconvenienced than Joseph and Mary as she rode that distance to be registered with her husband for the taxes. Nobody looking in to the manger on that day that Jesus was born 
would have ever said with um, the hymn, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. But God was moving, and indeed, Jesus Christ was the, the hope of all the years, and is our hope even now. Many details surface that make the life of Jesus one of a kind. From the prophecies predicting his birth, to his ministry that changed this world forever, to his death and resurrection and ascension, which fulfilled the plan of God perfectly in order to redeem us and to forgive us and to reconcile us with God and to fill us with hope. One vital detail of Jesus' life that I want to bring to our attention this morning as we worship the Lord this Advent season is the importance of the virgin birth. This is a, a detail of the person of Christ and the presentation of who he is that is very critical to our understanding. How does the virgin birth of Christ affect our understanding of how we worship him, of how we understand his, his life here on earth? It's, it's vital. And so I want to hang this on five A's. I'm not much into alliteration, but this seemed to flow well. And so I hold it out uh, to you if you have your insert. The virgin birth abandoned, anticipated, announced, accepted, and accomplished. Don't vapor lock. I'll repeat them again later. But I want us to see uh, the importance of the virgin birth and that we would worship the Lord together. Let's notice first the virgin birth abandoned. The Bible describes and declares the supernatural movements and interventions of God in his creation. He is, after all, the supreme sovereign of creation. We should expect that God would break into the affairs of his creation in order to accomplish his purposes. He called the world into existence and he ordered the stars and put them in place, Isaiah 40 tells us. He calls them by name. He placed the planets in, in their orbits. He created the moons. And not only does God oversee the macro issues of creation, he breaks through on a personal level. And we see that in the tender and personal exchanges surrounding the birth of Jesus. There are several examples of extraordinary births in the Bible. We could look at Abraham and Sarah and the supernatural um, happenings concerning uh, the birth of Isaac. We could look at uh, Hannah in the Old Testament who gave birth to Samuel. We could look at Elizabeth who gave birth to, to, to John the Baptist. But Jesus was one of a kind. None compare with the amazing virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Christmas recognizes that the eternal sovereign God came to earth as a human being to live a righteous life among his people and then to die a perfect sacrifice in order that we might be forgiven. That the wrath of God would be lifted from us for he bore it on the cross and that we might repent and believe in him. Christmas recognizes that. It, that is the purpose of Christmas. And you look around and it would be easy to be confused as we look at fictitious characters and uh, the focus of the season being anything but what I've just said to you. But that is why we celebrate as Christians. 
Larry King was once asked, if you could select any one person in all of history to interview, who would you interview? And he said, uh, hands, hands down, Jesus Christ. I would interview Jesus Christ. And what would you ask him, Mr. King? And Larry King replied, I would, ask, uh, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. H.G. Wells, who was not a believer in Jesus Christ, once said that, I, he said, I'm a, I'm a historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess that as a historian that this penniless preacher of Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Well said, Mr. Wells. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, the text says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, this was a, a formal engagement that would ultimately lead to marriage, but was viewed in the Jewish culture as being in a, in a, in a bond. Not yet consummated, but in a bond, leading to marriage. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Jesus' distinctive birth isn't a myth. The virgin birth is often put aside, it's often abandoned. But I want you to notice, as you've been, if you would follow this Advent season, we began this Christmas celebration by looking at the genealogy of Jesus, verses 1 through 17. And Matthew's not writing, grasping for straws to try to bring meaning to Jesus' life. He's tracing with great purpose, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the birth line necessary to make a claim to be the Messiah. And so he takes us through history, not fantasy land, but through history, beginning with Abraham, bringing it through David, and ultimately to the fulfillment of the birth that he's describing in the verses before us this morning. His birth was distinctive. It isn't a myth nor merely a random fact from the gospel. It's a significant privilege given to the Son of God alone. And it is full of significance for knowing the person of Jesus and the God who has revealed himself to us. The virgin birth has been attacked and abandoned in unbelief by many. And I'm wanting to hold it up to us this morning that this is a clear teaching of the word of God. That the, that the, the baby that, that grew in Mary's womb and was ultimately birthed by her in Bethlehem was placed there by the Holy Spirit that Jesus would be the infinite God-man, fully God and fully man. Donald McLeod, in his book, The Person of Christ, wrote, the virgin birth is, is posted on, on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas. And none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself and that if we find it offensive, there's no point in proceeding further. The virgin birth is supernatural, not mythical, not a fairy tale. It's anchored in history, 
To me, that's one of the, the, the solid apologetics or defenses of the Christian faith, that our faith is rooted in history. Jesus really was born. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross of substitutionary death. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And this Jesus who went up will come back again in like fashion. We should not be surprised that Satan would counterfeit, counterfeit the, the truth uh, surrounding the birth of Christ. Bizarre myths have been spun as explanation for the account of the virgin birth. These stories offer lame explanations and uh, on the uniqueness of Christ's birth. Um, some that come, have come to my mind through my reading this week, the Romans claim that Zeus impregnated Semele with, without contact and produced Dionysus, Lord of the earth. Babylonian religion asserted that a sunbeam in the, prince, uh, the priestess Sarah Aramis conceived Tammuz, the Sumerian, Sumerian fertility god, Buddha's mother alleged that she saw a large white elephant enter her belly when she conceived the deified Indian philosopher. Hinduism teaches that the divine Vishnu, after living as a fish, a tortoise, a boar, and a lion, entered Devaki's womb and became her son, Krishna. Satan has smeared other similar legends across the landscape of history with all the purpose of undermining the nature of Christ's birth and deceiving people into seeing it as just another myth along with all the religious stories that have ever been. But I would argue, convincing, convinced within my soul, that the way this is presented in Matthew and in Luke in particular is rooted in history. Maybe you don't take the gospel serious because of unbelief. Maybe you read something like this and say, this really doesn't apply to the real world. Maybe you've not come to receive biblical, the biblical accounts of Christ and his, his birth, his life, his miracles, his work as our only qualified redeemer. Maybe you've prized your scientific mind as explaining everything in the world. It doesn't. John MacArthur wrote, the scientific age and emergence of modern and postmodern theologies during the last two centuries have eroded many professing believers' confidence in the reliability of Scripture, and in particular the virgin birth. Along with the trend has been a noticeable decline in the percentage of Christians who believe in the deity of Christ. But such skeptical thinking is foolish and directly contrary to the explicit teaching of Scripture. But besides the world's opinion, just give it a little while and it'll change. It's always changing. But we turn to the word of God to give us truth and to stand upon it. That Jesus was indeed born of a virgin, overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Mary gave birth to the sinless Son of God. Notice with me, secondly, the virgin birth anticipated all through the Bible, there is a sense of drama building to the anticipation of this virgin birth. It's mentioned first in Genesis 3.15, and it gives us a glimpse that Christ's birth would be special. As God promised in the context of the fall of Eden, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, which is an inter interesting way to say that, because 
Typically, the, the man is the one with the seed. But in this prophecy, God specifically says, between your seed and her seed, the woman's seed belongs to the man, but uh, Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, all this took place to fulfill what the prophet had said. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Isaiah spoke of this in chapter 7, verse 14. And Matthew quotes Isaiah 7, and it confirms that the prophet did indeed predict the virgin birth. And he does so in the context of a national crisis. Wade with me into verses 22 and 23 of Matthew. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And so in Isaiah's immediate context, um, Isaiah is preaching during the wicked reign of, of Judas king Ahaz. And Ahaz faced the threat from the king of Israel in the north and from the Syrian king Rezin. And instead of seeking the Lord's help, he sought foreign alliances to deliver him. He sought the help of the brutal Assyrian ruler Tiglath-Pileser. And so Ahaz refused to listen to Isaiah, who assured him that God would deliver his people. God would deliver them if he would call upon them. If they would call upon the name of the Lord, he would come. And within this context, Isaiah spoke of the sign of a virgin conceiving, which was a promise that no one would destroy the people of God in the royal line of David. Isaiah also said that before another child was aware of, the, of events, the territories would be abandoned. So Isaiah's words were fulfilled before this other child, who was born to Isaiah's wife, was three years old, the two enemy kings were dead. Just as God fulfilled that ancient prophecy about Isaiah's son, so he was about to fulfill the one concerning the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Both were signs from the Lord that he keeps his promises, that he is faithful to his people, not to abandon his people. But the greatest of the two was obviously the second one, behold, a virgin shall conceive. So Isaiah uses the word Alma in the text in Isaiah, which means virgin or young woman. And Matthew picks it up here and beyond dispute said, behold, the virgin shall conceive. It came about. It was answered. The prophecy was, that was anticipated was fulfilled in Bethlehem. Notice with me thirdly. The virgin birth announced. Matthew said again in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And the virgin birth of Jesus reveals some startling truths. Some essential truths. Why, why is this a, an important doctrine? I would mentioned several reasons that come to mind. It, it shows us the supernatural power of the life of Jesus. He was not a mere man. It was said of his preaching, no one, no one talks like him. He speaks as one having authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. The supernatural power of his life, Jesus was fully human and fully God. Not only that, it reveals that we need redemption that we cannot pull off by ourselves. 
We, we can't provide it through the norm, normal course of human reproduction. And then thirdly, it demonstrates that God has taken the initiative in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son born of a woman. God is taking initiative and has taken initiative that you might know his redemption if you would receive it. So maybe the question is, are you saying that I need to believe in the virgin birth in order to be a believer? Yes. Because it rightly represents the Christ who saves. And if you put it off as something that's not, not really that important, you deny this doctrine, it opens the door for you to stand above in judgment of Scripture and all that it teaches to determine the way you want to go, which is a sure recipe for spiritual implosion and disaster. If we start saying, this, how could, this, this couldn't possibly be, then why not say that about creation? Why not say that about any miracle that, that is presented in the Scripture? If we believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it's not too difficult for him to pull off a virgin conception. In fact, that would be the plan that he had in order to bring a redeemer who could really save. If the virgin birth is not true, then the narrative of Jesus changes radically. If he's not virgin conceived and, and born of a virgin and Mary and Joseph remained pure with one another until the birth of Jesus, and Mary had other children. In Matthew 13, at the end of the chapter, it lists James and Joseph, and, 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 and Jesus had sisters as well. But with regard to Jesus' birth, as the eldest that would come forth from Mary through the virgin birth, it, it, it changes the narrative radically. Mary becomes... If Mary wasn't, if she didn't conceive as a virgin, what alternatives are there? Well, what it does is it makes Mary a liar. She becomes a sexually promiscuous young woman making the best of a bad situation. I heard the virgin birth explained that way to me once. Rejected as a miracle, you know, God was just bringing about a bad situation. I think that changes the narrative of Jesus radically, don't you? She becomes a liar because Luke interviewed Mary. Matthew knew Mary. They received information from her for their gospel accounts. And so she would have fabricated the details of Jesus' birth. And this places Jesus in the same human stream as you and I. Which takes us back to Adam. And in Adam, all what? Die. All die. But in Christ, all are made alive. And this brings into question any of his miracles. Not the least of which, the most important of all, his resurrection from the dead. So, the virgin birth announced, and I pray received by you. Look at, uh, fourthly, the virgin birth accepted. Who would have to accept that? 
Mary first. This is a unique message for sure. But what about Joseph? You ever thought about Joseph? You're betrothed to this girl and you learn that she is with child and you're not responsible for it. In verses 19 and following, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly to end the bond that would lead ultimately to marriage and just try to avoid any more scrutiny than is necessary. Joseph's faced with some, some pressures, wouldn't you say? He was a righteous man committed to honor the Lord, but the circumstances would test anyone. How could he go forward marrying Mary, knowing that he was not the father, assuming another man was? Another challenge was how to respond to Mary. Feelings of betrayal and pain, maybe anger and bitterness. He was grieved at the thought of shaming her publicly. He was a righteous man. He loved the Lord. He cared about her. And this seems to be the biggest concern he has is her well-being. The law called for her death, by the way, in Deuteronomy. And all of these things came together on this young man. And he planned to divorce her and to move on. And then what does the Lord do? He graciously comes to Joseph and reveals what he had revealed to Mary. And the text tells us, picking up in verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is not from another man, Joseph. It's from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. And when Jesus woke up from sleep, what a rejuvenating thought that must have been to the crisis that he, that he was bearing in his heart. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took uh, his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus the angel's words provided an ironclad testimony to the essential truth of the virgin birth. And Joseph's obedience speaks to his faith in the living God. What an example to us. When God speaks, we obey him. Fifthly, the virgin birth accomplished. What if Jesus' incarnation had never happened or when it is totally ignored. What if, what if his incarnation never came? James Kennedy asked that question in one of his books. What if Jesus had never been born? C.S. Lewis put it this way, it would always be winter, but never Christmas. <laughs> the Dutch theologian Herman Bavick said, the essence of the Christian religion consists in this, that the creation of the Father, ruined by sin, is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit into a kingdom. Jesus came to inaugurate that. The angel tells Joseph and Mary that she will bear a son, not just any son, but Jesus who will save. And God chose the name Jesus for his son because its meaning to find the purpose of his coming. 
He said after spending time with Zacchaeus, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus spoke in those terms. Lost? Who, who's lost? Anyone without a Savior? I would ask you this morning, are you lost? I don't like to think in those categories. Those are biblical categories. You're either saved or you're lost. You're, you're either on the road that leads to heaven or you're on the wide and broad accommodating road that leads to destruction. There are only two paths in the Bible. He was named Jesus, which means Jehovah will save. The baby Mary had conceived by the Holy Spirit came forth according to the predetermined plan of God to save sinners. Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy was, it's a trustworthy statement, worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The redemption is offered to you today. What an offer. Right now. And maybe you're thinking, well, this afternoon I'm meeting with family, and then Monday night I've got this party, and Tuesday we have this, and all the way through the week, and I've got all... I'm wanting to say this, this is more important than any gathering in this world, and that is your, your salvation. Your salvation. Christmas, the Christmas message intersects in your life at the point that you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, your God. To save his people from their sins because there's a perishing, friends. There's a, there's a hell. Jesus taught about that so much in the Gospels. The teaching of an eternal punishment in hell is clearly presented in Scripture. Jesus uses the same word, eternal life, an eternal punishment to describe the same, the same enduring situation. So the teaching of an eternal punishment in hell is clearly presented in Scripture. If you were to die today, where would you go? And probably more importantly, why do you think that you would go there? Randy Alcorn writes, if we understood hell, even the slightest bit, none of us would ever say go to hell. It's far too easy to go to hell. It requires no change of course, no navigational adjustments. We were born with our autopilot set toward hell. It's nothing to take lightly. Hell is the single greatest tragedy in the universe. And Jesus came to save from that. But he, but he must be received. His death and resurrection must be received into your life. The call is to repent of your sins and to believe in Jesus Christ alone. God has come near through his son. He's not a distant, detached, checked out deity. For the, the passage says that he is, he is called Emmanuel. God with us. God with us forever. Christ in us. Christ around us. Christ before us. John Wesley, as he lay dying, struggled to speak. He took a, a deep breath for one final declaration of faith and he grasped a hand and said, best of all, 
God is with us. There's an assurance for the believer in Christ that this world is not our home. And good news this Christmas, God is with us. I pray that he's in you and that you're trusting in him. The virgin birth is a critical understanding to who Jesus Christ is. And he's the savior you need to receive. Would you do that now, right now? Would you call out to him? I don't know what burdens you have on your heart this morning, but would you cast them on the God who's able? He's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you ask or think. He's able to sustain you and keep you and keep you from stumbling and to present you in his, into, in his presence, blameless with great joy. Would you call out to him now? Would you bow with me in prayer? Of all the things we could say about Jesus Christ, these things are written that you might believe that he's the son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name. Father, we come to the close of this service and we want to finish in faith. We've heard solid truths from your word this morning. And I pray, Lord, for all that you want to do in this appointed gathering, that we would give our heart, our life, we would surrender all to you, knowing that nothing that is given to you will ever be lost. And Father, I pray that your light would shine forth from us, that you would give us a witness this week and beyond. For those that are struggling with this claim of the gospel, I pray that you would lift the fog, that you would illumine their minds to see the beauty of who Jesus is and the promises that are true, and that they would move from agreeing with them to receiving them personally and savoring them in their heart and life. Lead us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There is a redeemer, Jesus, God's own son. Let's stand together as we sing. If there needs on your heart, you come.